Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll get an update on the war in Ukraine and its implications for U.S. national security policy. Our guest is Dr. Adam Stolberg. He is Sam Nunn Professor and Chair at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech. Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris and National Field Director Phil Smith join me for that conversation. And uh, then we'll get a brief update on the uh, or a, a quick reaction to the president's State of the Union address. Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson will join me for that. Well, uh, Dr. Stolberg's research focuses on the geopolitics of oil and gas networks, energy security dilemmas and statecraft in Eurasia, Russia and certain gray zone conflicts. Uh, he's worked closely with former Senator Sam Nunn, a former Concord Coalition co-chair, by the way, uh, helping to draft policy recommendations and background studies on future directions for the U.S. Uh, Cooperative Threat Reduction Program. So all that makes Dr. Selberg a perfect guest to guide us through the many security, economic, and geopolitical challenges of Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine. Professor Stolberg, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thank you for having me. You know, uh, February 24th begins the, uh, the second year of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Although if you ask a Ukrainian, they'll say that they've been at war with Russia for a long time. <laughs> this version of the invasion. Um, and before we get into the specifics, uh, let me begin with kind of a broad Big picture question. A year into this conflict, um, are there specific things that you think the you know Americans should understand about what's going on there? Well, I mean, other than being brought back to the beginning of the 20th century and, and <laughs> if not earlier, in terms of the nature of war we're seeing, which we thought we had uh, you know far surpassed and uh, many of our theories of war, or at least our expectations, at least in the popular domain about how high technology is going to fundamentally change the nature of war. I think we're seeing a lot of, uh, um, you know, uh, corrective uh, to some of that uh, popular understanding, although we are seeing some really interesting combinations and very quick innovations at the tactical level and even at the operational level of the use of uh, you know, drones, for example. Uh, but, you know, the other surprising thing I think about the war is really how in the dark most of us are about what's actually transpiring uh, right in the middle of Europe, arguably the largest country in, in the middle of Europe, uh, in this very high intense war. Um, we don't see, I mean, our governments and intelligence folks may be seeing a lot, but the average person is not seeing uh, I would argue as much about that, uh, which I think, I mean, I, this is stretching beyond my, um, 
you know, analytical capability, but there's a real question about what does that do in terms of popular support for a war, popular understanding about war, uh, the propensity to continue a war, um, and to, to continue suffering or for, for um, others to, to take risks in this context. So I think that the war is not played out the way that any of us expected it. And of course, this whole conflict has been a, one big surprise, right? Our strategy of deterrence between 2014 and, and the end of uh, 2021 did not seem to work. Our strategies were not working. They brought us to a surprising step. Now, we give, have to give credit to the U.S. intelligence community for at the, you know, at the moment of truth, we were understanding what was going on. But strategically speaking, we, were, we really did not um, have a strategy for that. Then when, when our expectations of the nature of war being relatively high in, high, highly intense, very quickly over, you know, the Ukrainians would be very quickly overrun. Of course, we've seen a valiant effort uh, and a tremendous effort actually um, uh, displayed by uh, not only Ukrainian professional soldiers, but by their territorial units and by uh, conscripts um, have been tremendous in their fight. And of course, Russia has fought in a very fought in different ways than we thought they would and with uh, with different levels of su success than we would have expected and been more unprepared uh, for uh, waging the type of war. So there, there's you know to answer the, the big question has been there have been a lot of surprises uh, <laughs> about this war. Um, I think another thing before I, I stop is that, this war is taking place, and I think for the average American who is very far uh, from it, it seems to be at a long distance. Yet at times, nuclear weapons are brandished, and the risk of an apocalyptic escalation is punctuated. It's not like we're brought in a steady escalation or linear escalation of tensions. Uh, so we're at this biting moment of truth. It's sporadically out of nowhere, all of a sudden nuclear weapons are threatened or we think they're being threatened uh, and no one really knows what to make of it. So again, a lot of surprises. This is not the war uh, we thought we'd be waging. Uh, there's been a tremendous amount of adaptation uh, by all parties the, at the strategic level as well as at the tactical uh, level and operational levels. Um, but one big surprise, I would say. And humbling for those of us who study. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yes, indeed. I think uh, a year ago uh, or so when this began, there are a lot of developments we wouldn't have anticipated. Um, th this is a, a, a question that um, might be kind of difficult, but I'll ask you to speculate a little bit for what surprises do you think there have been for Vladimir Putin? Well, uh, Ukrainians, the resolve, the resiliency. Uh, the ingenuity, uh, their training. Um, this was not the military they thought they would be fighting. I think uh, Zelensky's resilience, his emergence as a national leader in war was something that I completely think he discounted. Uh, I think the, the thinking in the Kremlin was that uh, they just put a little bit of pressure, uh, especially in Kyiv, and that regime will collapse uh, and they will be able to orchestrate their influence uh, over that regime. Uh, so I think that has been the biggest surprise. I think the resilience of Europe, 
uh, to withstand the pressure of, of the energy uh, uh, challenge, you know, leading up to the war and coming out of 20, you know, in the fall of 2021, coming into 2022. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of us were thinking this was about pipelines and supply. It was really about storage. And Ukraine and the Europeans really uh, were not in a good place in August and September in terms of their storage uh, facilities going in, you know, in, in 2021, going into 2022. And I think that the Kremlin thought that uh, with high, the, the prospects of high energy prices uh, would at minimum cause a lot of dissension and undermine the resolve of the Europeans to be a steady partner and standing firm uh, against Russia. Of course, Finland and Sweden, I think, surprised them um, uh, in terms of their the, how quickly they turned to changing their long-term policies and uh, and integrating, you know, putting themselves on a trajectory for integrating into NATO. So I think those were some very large surprises uh, that that caught them. And then, of course, I think the biggest surprise was how unprepared their military was for waging the war that the Kremlin wanted to wage. Uh, so I think there was tension between, um, you know, what the the cronies around Putin and maybe the security forces uh, were thinking that they could pull off, and what the mili- professional military was prepared uh, to wage. That's uh, listening to you. The, the, those last two questions is is really is just fascinating. How many surprises? <laughs> Things that. But uh, many of us just didn't anticipate at the beginning, although many of us didn't anticipate a war breaking out in the first place. So, um, Av, do you want to follow up with some uh, some other comments? Absolutely. And uh, so, Professor Stolberg, when we talked to you a year ago, one of the things you said that was most striking was that ultimately the end game is going to be a question of how much, how much will Russia be able to accept? How much will the Ukrainians be able to accept, the Europeans, the Americans? And answers to those questions will give you the answer to what this looks like when the shooting stops. So I wonder if, you know, if you can answer some of those questions yourself in the sense that because there have been surprises, it seems to be that the goalposts have changed a little bit. What we were thinking would have been how much is acceptable a year ago. That's changed a little bit, wouldn't you say? Sure. I mean, like we were just talking about all these surprises, and I think we've had recalibration on all parts. But, you know, when we talked a year ago, I would have suggested, and, and I did suggest that it was, you know, what what is there to gain, right? And uh, we'd have to go around the table and look at that and, you know, sort of do a cost-benefit analysis. I think a year in, we're getting close to, I would argue, for Russia, and this is where I would argue is a danger point for us, is when the question becomes how much are they willing to lose? Mm-hmm. And that's, that is a, that's where I think a lot of trepidation is coming from. For, for example, if Putin has been really a, more opportunistic, he saw Ukraine weak, he saw this as an asymmetry of interest, he didn't think you, Europe and the U.S. would stand firm and providing the supplies that were needed, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that this would be kind of a walk in the in the Ukrainian park, if you will. Um, and of course, so he wasn't really willing to pay huge costs because he didn't think he'd have to. But then, of course, the, the you know, he gets stung. They're not prepared. Uh, we're now in sort of a war of attrition. Uh, we're in a very different complex. Now, so if you think that 
Uh, he can't just cut and run. Uh, but now the question is, how much is he willing to lose? And that's where, um, if it's a little bit, okay. But this is where his calculation interacts with Ukrainian calculation and our calculation, uh, which our calculation may be different. And I think you hear, you're hearing this from uh, Blinken and from others about, you know, where, what do we want in this? How do we see the end game? Well, you know, yes, I think the appetites for Ukrainians for the West in general have gotten bigger uh, than, than at the beginning of the conflict uh, because of Russia's performance. But if Ukraine is committed and dead set to, you know, evicting Russia from all of their territory, including uh, those that uh, Russia had influence or if not control over prior to 2022, well, that may be where uh, Putin's loss and Ukraine's gain may come into direct conflict with each other. And then the question is, where are we going to be on that uh, calculus? So I think that before this was really a target of opportunity and we were really, I mean, I, I can't prove this, but I got the sense that we were willing to write it off to some extent um, in the beginning. And Ukraine's, uh, Ukrainians obviously were fighting for their, their nationhood. A year in, the question is, how much is Putin willing to sacrifice as a loss? How much are we going to temper the, the appetite for victory on the part of Ukrainians uh, if there's a movement away from this, you know, attrition uh, situation that we're in and that a lot of people are expecting in the next few weeks or months, we may see another um, offensive that will try to move those things. And those are the questions I would say that are going to be front and center with us rather than the, you know, the calculations that were there a year ago. A qu quick follow-up on that, because I, I think you're right in the sense that the Europeans, uh, you, you, you mentioned Finland and Sweden moving quickly to join NATO and we'll, we'll see how that works out. Turkey has a bit of an issue with that, but, but, the West and Europe and the United States and the Ukrainians, too, all seem to be a lot less afraid of Russia and the nuclear threat now than they were. And I think what you're talking about is, you know, there's been talk in Ukraine about liberating Crimea and going you know, all, all the way through there. Is it a mistake? Is there a point at which we should be more afraid than we are? Because I think, you know, mentioning the, the nuclear threat, the Biden administration doesn't seem to be too concerned with that now. Otherwise, they wouldn't have agreed to you know, send tanks to Ukraine or some of those red lines that Putin had said. But uh, do we risk a mistake? Do we risk kind of backing into a major power, you know, potentially nuclear conflict if we're not careful? The Biden administration has been very clear since before uh, the war, the outbreak of war, that we were not going to be directly involved in terms of sending our own troops um, and directly fighting and bumping up against Russian soldiers. That's something that I think people have forgotten a lot about, because I think that in the Putin calculus, this fed this notion that this is an opportunity, because we said we're out. Now, all the surprises were how well we've, we've trained and supported and, and how well the uh, Ukrainians have performed and et cetera. But I think you need, when we think about where we're headed, it's and and what's transpired. Yes, we didn't think we were debating about javelins. Uh, then we were debating about HIMARS. 
Then we were debating about, you know, uh, Leopard 2s and M1A1s. Uh, then we're now we're debating about extending the ranges of some of these missiles, maybe even uh, aircraft, right? So the lines have shifted, but the overarching message, I think, from the Biden administration has been they're not going to send, uh, they're not going to get directly involved in Ukraine and uh, in, in, in fighting in Ukraine against Russians. And they're going to put clear limits on what Ukraine can do in terms of attacking Russian territory, right? What's been the, the slippery dimension has been where, you know, because Putin very early on, within weeks, within a week of mounting that sort of shock and awe attempt in, uh, in February of 2022, all of a sudden issued, he used the term red line and he brandished in an opaque way, uh, a special procedure, operational procedure of readiness for uh, nuclear forces, right? He has popped off in ways uh, that he has never before about red lines. You have to ask yourself, what's the purpose of a red line? For us, red line is all about deterrence. It's about making your adversary unambiguously clear that, you know, where that line in the sand is and don't cross or else. So a red line has to have a threat and a consequence to it that have to be very explicit. And the reason you make a red line statement in public is so your adversary knows it's very difficult for you to worm out of that uh, commitment because you'll suffer either reputational costs uh, with uh, in the international community or domestic political costs at home for backing down. You know, we saw a lot of the discussion around Obama and the, and the red lines in Syria, right? When we look at all those incidents of red lines by Putin, and especially in 2022, they're not clear. He's rarely clear about what the threat is. He never mentions the consequence of crossing. We need to be very careful about what is it that he's actually saying when he issues these kinds of threats. And so I would argue that, yes, he's been using red lines, but in a different way than we do. It's been more out of weakness to create uncertainty, maybe so we become self-deterred because we don't know what he's talking about. And all of a sudden, it sparks a debate in the West about using nuclear weapons and the risk of him using tactical nuclear weapons or even strategic nuclear weapons, things that he's not even saying. But we've now integrated that into the conversation. Or do we, you know, Crimea is a red line or Donbass is a red line or uh, providing Offensive systems is a red line versus defensive. These are debates that we're having, and he's all over the map in that. I'd be very careful about them two things. One, I don't think the Biden administration has been amb ambiguous about putting some severe limits on how much we're going to get engaged and to, and to how directly we're going to be getting engaged. And Putin, I don't think, is using these red lines the same way we think about red lines. But the problem may be that we think he's using red lines the way that we're, we use them. And as a result, we see us blowing through some of these ideas that either he's saying or we're thinking he's saying, and we're getting more and more emboldened by that. But I do think, and there have been some recent, there's been some recent commentary in the last couple of days that have underscored, I think, where the limits are in terms of the kinds of support that the United States is going to provide Ukraine in terms of hitting urban targets or territory, you know, that are in the Russian territory and hitting, you know, uh, going across the line. Now, there have been 
a number of commando raids and some suspicious explosions, even at strategic bomber bases in Russia that do raise alarm about this kind of thing. Uh, because if we're not on the same page about where their red lines are and, and how they're using red lines, and we're feeling uh, emboldened, not just us, but Ukrainians and others are feeling emboldened about what's going on on the ground, there could be, especially if Putin is in that domain of loss that we were talking about before, where he's now worried about what is he going to lose versus what is he going to capture, that's where I think we get into some new territory. We're going to have to take our first break here. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Communications Director of Harris, National Field Director Phil Smith, and I are talking with Dr. Adam Stolberg, Chair of the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and uh, Concord Coalition Field Director Phil Smith and uh, Communications Director Av Harris and I are discussing uh, the war in Ukraine one year in with Dr. Adam Stolberg, Chair of the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech. Um, Phil, we'll go to you now for a question. Thank you, Bob. And thank you, Professor Stolberg, for your great work at the Sam Nunn School at Georgia Tech. And I'm interested from a cost and benefit perspective, you know, at the Concord Coalition, we obviously spend a lot of time looking at the federal budget and uh, the Congress of the United States, the president of the United States um, has basically invested a lot of money, a sizable amount of money in this effort in Ukraine. And, and I think it enjoys fairly broad support. I mean, if you look at members of the American public, our, our, you know, the constituents and our policymakers, there seems to be fairly broad support. But there are some outliers. Uh, in fact, there was an outlier politician from down here from where you and I are in Georgia who recently said, not one penny to Ukraine. You know, our country should come first. And I guess my question is, in many ways, you know, this isn't just about freedom fighters in Ukraine. I mean, that's a good reason enough to help them out. Uh, but there are ways that we're putting our country first. Aren't we receiving some confirmed benefits uh, from this investment uh, in, in, in the Ukraine effort? And, and, I, and, I, and I guess a follow up question would be, should Americans be prepared uh, and should our policymakers brace themselves for possibly even higher spending uh, in the future? Well, that's a great question. And I mean, we saw some of the inklings of what you're discussing, you know, play out at the end of uh, 2022 as uh, there was discussion of the shift in Congress and was, was this going to be an issue of, of contention. And I think Ukrainians have actually tried to preempt some of that by demonstrating how well their, their fiscal responsibility of using the economic and military assistance. And you're seeing now efforts to root out corruption and folks that are uh, potentially problematic that could be used to help make the case about uh, withholding uh, largesse. So, I mean, look, on the economic front, I mean, this is a boon to defense industrial, uh, you know, interests here in the United States and within the NATO alliance. Um, you know, we're getting rid of a lot of old stocks of things, and now we're, uh, you know, we're reaching uh, the limits of where we are with some of our frontline equipment. And so this is going to be creating jobs in different parts of the country uh, and across the alliance. So I think that's it's also brought the alliance closer. And I think for more uh, and I think this will also e lead to more efficiencies within the alliance uh, and on the military uh, industrial side. 
Okay, so that's that. Obviously, I think there's some. This is a uh, there's a strategic reset uh, that's taking place um, in the you know with the war with the with Russia really on its heels. Um, you know, we're, there's going to be an opportunity to help uh, not only um, once the the war is over, hopefully. Uh, uh, double down on the sort of liberal international order that we benefit tremendously in terms of our uh, political freedoms, our values, as well as trade and investments. Uh, these are things, especially in the middle of Europe, that are critically important as Europe is becoming more coherent economically uh, and, and making that energy transition in Europe and creating business opportunities uh, for U.S. investment, not only in Europe, but in Ukraine for a cleaner, sustainable uh, future. So this is a huge boon uh, for that moving forward from, uh, you know, housing construction to energy uh, infrastructure. There's going to be a, a lot of opportunity there so in a very crass way. Strategically, um, I think that the short term, yeah, there are a lot of potential opportunities. I think a lot of people are sort of uh, chafing at the bit at the notion of a weak Russia, I would maybe give pause to some of that because I think that that may create some more instability in areas that are outside of what we think are our primary interests. So um, much like when the Soviet Union collapsed and we were excited about that, uh, that ushered in a whole host of other uh, issues and challenges and instabilities that we weren't quite aligned uh, to deal with until a decade or so into that. So I'd say be careful of what we wish for in terms of a weak Russia. But that said, the kinds of challenges that, that we saw coming out of Russia or that we thought were going to be coming out of Russia, um, you know, prior to uh, 2022, um, I do give us much more opportunity. And then we see an invigorated NATO uh, they're, uh, you know, ready to, to, to address some of these issues. You know, one thing I wanted to, to get into uh, that sort of goes back to the, the roots of the war is the idea of Russia using energy as a weapon and how all that is. We have nowhere near enough time for you to go through all that. But, you know, this war has greatly changed up, or at least seems to be uh, has the potential to greatly change up energy markets, which is something that uh, Russia has been a big player in. And I wonder if you could just uh, touch on how Russia has used energy as a, as a weapon and how this uh, war may be affecting their strategic use of energy. You know, there's a lot of conversation and a lot of analysis about Russia's use of energy as a weapon. And the most of the attention was really focusing on the supply, uh, the delivery, like pipelines, um, in particular, was a big thing, and how using those pipelines to, you know, turn the spigot on and off to affect both the the volume and price. Um, I think one of the interesting things going into this part of the conflict was that really the energy competition weaponization was really a, had to do with storage facilities and and racing uh, on the part of Europe to fill their storage facilities prior to the meat of winter in, the, in, the, in 2022. Uh, and I think what caught the Russians by surprise was how quickly and effectively Europeans did that and then how much they were willing to either reduce their consumption on the margins or pay a higher price and diversify some of their, uh, their sources. But I think the big strategic picture about Russia and energy 
and, and energy in this conflict is one, I think energy for a while now has been a waning asset for Russia in terms of its geostrategic influence. Um, with, yes, there's been a lot of attention to natural gas, but the natural gas landscape has changed since 2009 when they cut off uh, Ukraine uh, last and to, even in 2014. Uh, you've seen the emergence of unconventionals and I would argue really the increasing uh, development of LNG, which allows for much more flexible supply. And you've seen prices at a, at a level that is rationalized uh, bringing those unconventionals onto the market. And as those unconventionals have been brought onto the market, there's been technological innovation So in, in fracking such that not only is it a little bit cleaner than it was earlier on, although there's still some problems with it, I don't want to uh, say we're out of the woods on that, but you can turn it on and off. Um, and that's really been the secret to the United States and being a balancer, a global balancer of prices. Um, with respect to uh, uh, bringing hydrocarbons on. It's not that we're going to displace OPEC or OPEC plus, but we can act as a balancer. When the prices get too high, we can release uh, uh, reserves on there. So all of this is to say that Russia's ability to use natural gas uh, as a lever, and that's really the only lever they had. Oil is what they use to generate revenue that can pay for the war. And so that's why oil is getting a lot of attention. But oil as an instrument to lord over another country has not really been the focal point of their energy weaponization. Now, gas was, but gas has really been declining. And then as much as, as the energy transition in Europe is, is gathering steam, and Europe, remember, is the largest customer for Russia's established natural gas, and where all their infrastructure and the lion's share of their infrastructure is oriented towards, then uh, that's a problem for them. And I think that going into this war, the Kremlin recognized that natural gas is not their cudgel. And it's not going to be a long-term cudgel. It would have short-term impact, as we talked about before. Uh, but I don't think I think they saw the writing on the wall. What I think the war has also done is, you know, it, when we started this, we thought we were going to be in a horn of a dilemma. Do we invest in hydrocarbons today at the expense of kicking down the energy transition and sustainability further down the road? Well, I think what we're seeing in Europe is they're willing to do both, and actually. The promise in this space, because it's really been focused on not about bring, not about opening up new supplies, it's creating new transportation, transit options, supply lines, pipelines, LNG. And as they build those facilities up, one of the interesting real innovations in the energy space has to do with uh, carbon capture and utilization, right? Using converting carbon from the atmosphere into liquids that can be then used in the existing liquids, liquid hydrocarbon infrastructure to push out or use for storage, right? Because one of the problems with solar and hydro and all these other renewables is that uh, we're, we're still trying to figure out the cost of bringing it out of the ground or out of the sky, but then we haven't really factored in the cost of getting it out uh, to the consumer or storing it. And that's where hydrocarbons and the liquid infrastructure can be converted over time. And so an investment in building out interconnectors in Europe today to facilitate gas flows between European countries, taking LNG from you know, Qatar or from other uh, places, uh, is not 
throwing good money today away for tomorrow because we're investing in these interconnectors that could potentially be used to, to flow clean hydrocarbons in the future. Um, and so in that regard, I see, and I, you see European countries really moving on, you know, nuclear in some countries is giving a, a, has been given another opportunity. Uh, hydrogen, which is part of the story that I've just been telling you, has is is been getting a lot of attention. The more that Europe transitions along this line, the weaker Russia's you know, instrument of, of leverage over them is going to be. The challenge, I think, is going to be what happens when we're done with this war and we're done with this regime and we need to bring Russia back into the fold where are they going to fit into this mess? Because they're no longer going to be, you know, just providing hydrocarbons. They're going to have to catch up. Maybe it's hydrogen. Maybe it's nuclear power. I mean, but they're going to have, we're going to have to figure that one out. And that's, you know, that, but it's going to be a different landscape than it is today. We're going to have to leave it there. Um, this is your host, Bob Bixby. We're um, talking with uh, Dr. Adam Stolberg. He is the Sam Nunn uh, chair at the uh, at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs. And we have been discussing the uh, the war in Ukraine one year in Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris and Phil Smith, our national field director, have joined the conversation. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. In this segment, I'm joined by Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson. And we are going to give our instant analysis of the president's State of the Union address. Uh, for once, uh, the budget got uh, a lot of attention, not necessarily in a great way, but they're having this big debt limit fight. And uh, a lot of raucous cheering went on about uh, keeping Social Security and Medicare uh, off the table. So, Tori, I don't know what, you know, somebody asked me yesterday, well, don't you guys, don't you feel good about the fact that the budget's getting so much attention? <laughs> what do you think? Uh, the bruise you see on my forehead this morning is me constantly banging my head, my forehead against the brick wall last night, listening to the the, the president's speech. Um you know, I'm 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 glad people are concerned about the deficit, but I don't see any real conversation about improving it in any way. I think both sides are making promises that they just can't keep. Um, you know, the the president last night uh, made a commitment that his budget would reduce uh, future deficits by two trillion dollars, and then went on a, a a spree about how he wants to um, you know pass paid. Family Medical Leave Act, paid child care, restore the uh, the uh, CARES Act child tax credit, increase affordable housing, provide more financial support for home caregivers, make education more affordable, universal pre-K, um, uh, increase Pell Grants, free community college for two years. I mean, just on and on a laundry list. You know, he did talk about some some revenue raisers. Um, but I think we all know that, um, you know, there is no appetite for tax increases in either party. Um, you know, and on the flip side, you know, Republicans are promising to balance the budget, uh, in the 10th year, uh, put it, put forward a balanced budget. Um, 
you know, without touching entitlements and without raising taxes. And I'm just, you know, I, I just don't think either one is is credible. So I'm looking forward to the budget chicanery that we see in, in each one of them, because I just think there's going to be some funky math in there. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that, too. And speaking of uh, funky math, uh, as our chief economist, Steve, <laughs> what, what stood out for, for you? <laughs> well, you know, the, a perfect example of what Tori's talking about. So before the pandemic, we were running deficits of about a trillion dollars. And of course, during the pandemic, we had all the emergency spending and the deficit ran up to about three trillion dollars. And now that the pandemic spending has ended, we're back down to a trillion. So, you know, last night, President Biden was saying, well, you know, I cut the deficit by almost two trillion dollars. You know, it's sort of like, you know, the guy who puts on an extra 30 pounds and then he pats himself on the back for losing 20 of the 30 pounds. You know, I mean, you're still right back where you are, you know, worse than where you started. Um, you know, it's just, you know, it's clearly both parties have boxed themselves in. You've got, you know, after the, you know, the president accused the Republicans of wanting to sunset Social Security, and they all said, oh, no, 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 we don't want to do that. And he said, okay, so we've all agreed we're not going to touch Social Security and Medicare. Well, you know, it's kind of hard to balance the budget if you're going to take those off the table. And then, of course, the president failed to point out that he just got through, you know, if, if his student loan proposals go through, he just added a trillion dollars to the deficit. So, you know, I didn't, didn't, unless I missed it, I don't think there was any mention last night, other than increasing Pell Grants, I don't think there was any mention of, of the student loan issue. Exactly. Now, course, that, you're exactly right. That was in my notes. I'm like, no mention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, unless the courts save, uh, save, saves the administration from itself, you know, they just added a trillion to the deficit before they ever got started in trying to reduce the deficit. And, you know, you've got the tax cuts that expire, the 2017 tax cuts expire in 2025. Well, you know, he says he's not going to raise taxes on anybody making under 400,000. Well, you know, as, as much as, as he, you know, the Democrats have liked to criticize the tax cuts for the rich, the, the 2017 tax cut cut taxes for everybody, including those under 400,000. So if you let those expire, you know, by most people's definition, that's going to be a tax increase for those who make under 400,000. You know, um, I, I the, the moment that crystallized the budget debate for me was when he president uh, said we should stand up for seniors and literally everybody stood up for seniors. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, when has that ever been a problem? Um that's the problem. We've yeah, been standing up too much. Uh, you know, the thing about the debt is, what about standing up for kids? Now, he, he's got a lot of proposals that, you know, this Tory went through. Um, but even if those were all enacted and even if they were all paid for, you still have this uh, budget on an unsustainable track. And there used to be a time when presidents of both parties did at least pay lip service to the idea that there was a long term budget problem and that it was unfair to future generations. And we need to you know, work together on fixing this problem. And wow, this was the biggest sort of, you know, forget about all that. We're sticking up for seniors. And um, I, I think it's just going to make it really, really difficult to. Uh, you know, I mean, balancing the budget is, is a goal that's way out of 
uh, out of reach. But even just making some sort of reasonable, getting the budget back on a sustainable path is going to be difficult when you have bipart- every bipartisan member of Congress standing up for seniors. And we're not going to cut these two programs. And, the you know, people, what people forget, I wish somebody would remind them uh, is that those two programs, if they are not touched, one Medicare Part A is going to go insolvent in 2028 or 2026, somewhere around there, and uh, Social Security a couple of years uh, later. Uh, and so we need to we need to address those programs. So we can't put it in the public's head that these things are untouchable. Uh, they both need uh, current attention. And that, that, that uh, you know, um, this this debate is not helpful in that regard. Well, yes. And I, I just I, I want to make clear to, to people who perhaps may not be longtime listeners of this show, but, the, you know, the Concord Coalition, we are not anti-senior citizens, right? <laughs> Quite the opposite. We've been trying to draw attention to Social Security and Medicare because we know that those programs have not been updated to reflect the way people live, you know, the last 30 years of their lives. You know, Social Security was not meant to sustain somebody you know, for 25, 30 years in retirement, nor was it meant to be your sole source of income in retirement. Healthcare costs are outstripping, you know, the rate of growth in the economy, which means Medicare costs are growing faster than the revenues that are collected to support it. Um, So in order to make sure that those programs exist for all seniors, including people who are kids today and will be seniors tomorrow, for example, we need to modernize those programs. And so if we continuously say, these programs are off the table. That's not helpful. Okay. We need to have a national dialogue about what our priorities are and how we're going to pay for them. Okay. The, the, the tax, we can't solve social security and Medicare with tax increases alone. The tax increases that are required uh, to, to avoid any kind of benefit changes are prohibitive. They're, they would not have public support. Um, so I, I just think it's it's time for lawmakers to start being honest with voters, start treating them like children who can't handle, you know, the, 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 the tough choices and start talking about this. Honestly, let's figure out, you know, how we can reform these programs to be to be, you know, helpful to all generations. And just as a reminder there, Social Security and Medicare are 31 percent of the budget. Mm-hmm. Last year, uh, you throw in net interest, which we have to pay, and you're somewhere around thirty nine percent. You throw in veterans, you're you're getting around forty percent, over forty percent. Uh, and so, what's happening is things are just being taken off the table that make it absolutely impossible to achieve the goal that you want to achieve. I'm going to mm-hmm. lose fifty pounds by giving up carrot sticks and broccoli. Good luck. <laughs> Steve, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the uh, education loans. Uh, it was kind of striking that that uh, wasn't in the budget. It uh, wasn't in the speech. Uh, I wonder if it'll be in the budget because <laughs> it all well, happens under the radar screen. It's an administrative action. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing is because it's being done uh, through administrative action, it will actually be incorporated into the baseline. So there'll be no explicit policy, you know, there, there'll be no line item saying this is our proposed student loans. It'll just be incorporated into the revision of the existing program. So you'll, you'll have to, you know, go to the footnotes or the appendix to find, you know, some asterisk that tells you what those numbers are going to be. 
Um, hopefully, the Congressional Budget Office will give us their estimates when they release their uh, their budget outlook uh, next week. They did talk about the debt limit. I mean, the president talked about the debt limit. I say they because it seemed like an interactive event that <laughs> <laughs> there was there was input from the uh, the Congress uh, in a way that's unusual. It was almost like British Parliament, right? Prime Minister's questions with the House of Commons. It was. And I, I don't know whether I like it or not. I mean, the uh, traditionalist in me is, you know, more used to having the traditional speech. Um, there was something kind of refreshing about the back and forth. But uh, I don't know that could you could probably get carried away with that. Well, I, I don't like the name calling, um, but, you know, I, I, I think they should be able to register, you know, disip- I don't mind the booze so much. They should be able to register their 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 opinion. But, yeah, the name calling certainly harkens back to kindergarten. The president mentioned his budget. Uh, it's due March 9th, if mm-hmm. I recall, which is about a month late. And before that, we'll have the Congressional Budget Office update their baseline, which we all look forward to. That's all the time we have for this week. This is Bob Bixby. You're listening to Facing the Future. I've been joined by Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson giving some instant analysis of the President's State of the Union address. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.